Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, The Triumph of the Kingdom of God, with a message entitled, Genuine Repentance. So turning your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 to 16, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. of Isaiah contains a number of declarations against the folly of idolatry. The passages that I'm thinking of are a condemnation of the Jewish people and their love affair with foreign gods. And so God confronts his chosen people with a folly of idolatry. Isaiah 41, 21 and 23. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. And then in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I shall accomplish all my purpose. I know in our day, there are people who say, now, wait a minute, haven't others made prophecies about the future? (laughs) My response is, have you ever read Nostradamus? If there ever was a fraud, he's it. I mean, he said nothing but vague generalities, things that can be interpreted in thousands of different ways and have been interpreted in thousands of different ways. I mean, truth be told, he knew nothing about the future or he would have told us. Yeah, set forth your case. Let the gods and goddesses and the diviners and magicians and prophets of this world declare their power by telling us what is going to happen. See, the only way anyone can know what's going to happen is that the one who knows must be the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the God who was and is and is to come. The only way anyone knows what's going to happen is that he must be the sovereign God who controls the outcome of all things, and that's who the God of the Bible claims to be. Well, we've been studying the last six chapters of Daniel, and I hope your eyes are not glazing over. You know, I hope this is exciting, as we've seen the meticulous accuracy in which Daniel sees visions from God. I mean, first he knows of the rise of the Medo-Persian Empire. He knows that the Greeks will form their own empire, defeating the Persians. He knows the Greek king will have an untimely death, resulting in his empire being parceled out into four parts. He knows that one of the four parts will invade Israel and will desecrate the Jewish temple, and that this king will persecute God's people, but that this will come to an end. And then Daniel also knows of the coming of a much greater empire, which we now know to be the Roman Empire, and that eventually, from this, would arise the last great empire on earth, that is the empire of the Antichrist. So what does Daniel do with that information? Well, some of us would say, we should write a book, and I guess he did, but not immediately. You know, he's physically impacted by what he's shown and for a while becomes physically sick. And as far as we know, that was it. He kept the matter to himself, and then he went about the king's business as had been assigned to him. We've already noticed he had been given a much lesser role in government than he had enjoyed before. But now we come to chapter 9 in which Daniel is ready to do something. So let's read Daniel 9, 1-2. In the first year of Darius the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, 
In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So let's slow down. It's no longer the reign of Belshazzar. By now, the first part of Daniel's vision has been fulfilled. The Medo-Persian Empire has conquered Babylon. And that occurred in 539 BC. But now we read that this is the first year of the reign of Darius, who's the son of Ahasuerus. Now, just a note to the savvy Bible reader, please don't be confused. I know there's an Ahasuerus in the book of Esther. This is not him. Ahasuerus was most likely a Persian royal title, not just a personal name. And furthermore, the first year of Darius, that was 539 BC, that was the year that Babylon fell. And that means that most likely this event, Daniel sees here, happened some eight years after the previous chapter. By now, we suspect that Daniel is 81 years old. He's an old man. And we find out, just like before, he spends a great deal of time in Scripture. Let's say he's doing his devotions, and he comes upon the writings of the prophet Jeremiah. Remember, Daniel was but a boy when Jeremiah was prophesying. And Daniel's now reading Jeremiah 25, 10 to 11. So let's read what Daniel read. It says, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. And then several chapters after that, Daniel would have read a wonderful promise made to Israel. It's in Jeremiah 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when the 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So Daniel knows that the years of exile are now coming to an end. And so what does he do? Daniel 9, verse 3 says, Then I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Does that surprise you? Now, I don't mean that we should be surprised that Daniel was praying, but I would have thought that his heart would have been filled with joy. I mean, perhaps he should have been singing and shouting and saying, you know, praise God, the hard days are over. Now, of course, given his other visions, he knows there are still hard days coming, but they're in the distant future. I would have thought that what would follow would be one of the great anthems of praise in the Bible. Instead, as we see in verse 3, he puts on sackcloth, which is a sign of mourning. And then he begins to fast, and his prayer is a plea to God for mercy. Mercy. I mean, mercy for what? The days of suffering are over, or at least they soon will be. I mean, why is he in intense mourning and calling on God not to punish his people any further? See, I think Daniel understands that God defeated Babylon because the sins of Babylon had finally come up for judgment. Let me say this as simply as I can. God punishes entire nations. In the book of Jonah, we find Jonah going to Nineveh, demanding the nation repent, and they did. But then they returned to their former sins. And by the time we get to the time of the prophet Nahum, there's no more plea for Nineveh to repent. Her time of judgment is at hand. And go even further back to the time of Abraham and the judgment of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. See, there is a time when God's patience has run its course and when judgment will be speedily given. 
And this is what Daniel knows about the people of Israel. He'd been reading Jeremiah, and he knows why Jerusalem has been overthrown. God had sent the prophets and calling the people to repent, but they wouldn't. And then the time of God's patience was over. Daniel knows the lessons from history. What would happen if Israel were to go back to the promised land and then, as before, didn't repent? Then judgment would break out against them again. Now, what does all that tell us? Well, it should tell us that Daniel knew God in a way that many of us simply do not. Daniel knew that God does not overlook sin. God demands that we repent. You might remember what Jesus told the man whom he healed from lifelong paralysis. You know, that was done at the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. And then he said, see you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. We should do the same, so let's get personal. If God has blessed you in a special way, don't you dare think it's because of your holiness or godliness. No, no. It's because God is gracious and merciful. Every time he blessed you, get on your knees and confess to him that you're unworthy of his kindness. Indeed, you're only worthy of wrath. Confess to him that you're fully aware that he has not treated you as your sins deserved. Let him know that you're overwhelmed by his grace and use the opportunity to take stock of your careless sins that you've allowed to persist. Renounce those sins, confess them, and turn from them. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you the power to leave those sins behind. And so if you think about it, Daniel's response to reading that the years of Israel's captivity was coming to an end, well, It's not a strange response for a man who knows his God. So let's learn from Daniel and make his example a pattern for our own lives. And and furthermore, when we read about end times and about the second coming of our Lord, the first response is to say, well, I don't want the Lord to return as I'm living in open rebellion. I fear I can't leave this point too quickly. You know, there are those who have been taught not to confess their sins, and it's a false teaching. And furthermore, there are many who have never learned to make a pattern of regular confession of sins. We need to change that. We need to do what Jesus taught us to do, to pray, forgive us our sins. Oh God, we have been sinful in your presence. Oh Lord, forgive. Hi, this is Ben Lowell of Back to the Bible Canada. Do you want a daily reminder that will help you grow in your faith? Well, we can help. Our beautiful Back to the Bible Canada 2021 Growing in Faith Scripture Calendar is now available to you free of charge. This calendar reminds us of so many things. It reminds us of the beauty of God's creation, the beauty of God's Word, and it reminds us to spend time in the Bible every day. A uniquely designed Bible reading plan by Dr. Newfeld is placed within the calendar encouraging all of us to open up our Bibles. Use your calendar as a daily reminder to practice the discipline of reading God's Word. This resource is filled with encouragement, and it's yours for free. Request your copy today. And perhaps consider a gracious gift to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. begin to read the first part of Daniel's prayer of confession, and I call this first part a naming and an owning of sins. Daniel 9, 4-6. 
I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Notice how Daniel begins. You know, Daniel says, I pray to the Lord. And please notice that if you have an English Bible, it's in capital letters. Now, this is the covenant name of God. He prays to Yahweh. God made a covenant with Israel, and therefore Daniel dares to pray to the God of covenant. But even though he's the covenant God, yet Daniel is also aware this is the great and awesome God. Now, Daniel is more than aware that the covenant God could have consumed Israel for her sins. He's aware that God's ways are righteous and that his people have not been as God is. And yet Daniel is, at the start, overwhelmed with the steadfast love of God. He's the covenant-keeping God who never forsakes those who love him and are faithful to his commands. In short, Daniel is not, as we often find in our day, complaining that God could have allowed that horrible calamity of the exile to fall upon them. That is, he doesn't say, you know, if you love us, why have you let us suffer as we do? See, modern people pray that way. Daniel didn't. Rather, he marvels at God's faithfulness. They should have been consumed, but God has spared them further suffering. And he also acknowledges his people's sins. You've been faithful, God. We've not. We've turned from your law. And when you sent prophets who warned us, it was not just the common man and woman who ignored the prophets. It was also our kings and princes and the fathers of our nation were all under the blanket of guilt. We all share in it. Now, this kind of talk is necessary for all God's people. In our day, when we see the greater propensity for evil in our nation, I think Christians would do well to acknowledge their own sins first. You know, it may be that our nation is becoming more sexually immoral than ever, but we, even our Christian leaders, have failed the Lord and disobeyed his words. You know, as human greed reaches zenith levels in our culture, as basic selfishness takes first place in so many lives, even among the church, this disease of sinfulness is found deeply embedded among us. It's time to stop ignoring our own sins and then blaming God for the hardships we endure. It's time to marvel that God has been merciful and faithful, but we've been faithless. We've turned our back on him. It's time to repent. And so having unflinchingly confessed the sins of himself and God's people, Daniel, then in his prayer, moves to insisting that God remains blameless. The blame for the present suffering is never with God. So verses 7 to 10, To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame as at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. I find it interesting how easily we forget who God is, and who is the creature 
And for that reason, we often find it difficult to remember who is required to answer for their actions and who brings the guilty to trial. See, how often have people said, how can God do that? You see, in our minds, God must answer to us. And then we bristle when we're told that the reversal is true. God will not answer to your complaints, but you will answer to him. See, Daniel was under no such delusion. You know, indeed, it seems clear from reading this part of his prayer that he's basing his prayer on what he found in the book of Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy 28, it promises that if God's people remain faithful to the Lord, then, according to verse 7, the Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come against you one way and flee before you seven ways. It's an amazing promise. But then look at verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. So what kind of curses are we talking about? Well, listen to verse 36 to hear one of them. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. That's the background out of which Daniel prays. And it's amazing to think that, that Moses had spoken those words some 900 years before Daniel. But every word spoken by God remains true for all times. God does not utter a warning and then after, you know, a thousand years say, well, you know, things have changed now and it's no longer the case. No, no. God's word forever remains true. If we violate his commands, his warnings do come true. You know, he may, as in the case of Israel, send prophets to warn us, but if the warnings go unheeded, then disasters are sure to follow. But you say, oh, you know, that's the Old Testament. So let me read to you from the New Testament, Hebrews 10, 26 to 27. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. See, we need to pray like Daniel did. And yet Daniel remembers that Jeremiah the prophet remembered something else. Because of God's mercy, the people were not entirely destroyed. And all Daniel could say at this juncture was simply, to the Lord belong mercy and forgiveness. And yet the words from Moses in Deuteronomy haunted Daniel as he continued to pray. Verses 11 to 14, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity that has come upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. You know, verse 13 should capture our attention. All this calamity is a direct fulfillment of what was written in the law. Your word predicted this. You know, we've been saying that the Bible predicted the coming of the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans. But the Bible predicted that Jerusalem would be sacked if the people of God did not repent. You know, it's one thing to read Jeremiah that the exile will last 70 years, but it's just as true to read that if a people will not repent, God will bring disaster on them. 
But look again at verse 13. In spite of this undeniable truth, even yet, says Daniel, we have not as a people called days of national prayer and mourning for our sins. So here's an amazing truth. Sometimes people can stare straight at the coming judgment and unflinchingly go straight toward that judgment without doing what needs to be done to avoid it. I've often seen it among the elderly. See, all manner of people go to the very gates of eternity and never give eternity a second thought. That's what Daniel's talking about here. There's a phenomenon that he saw among the majority of the people of Israel. They weren't repenting. And this is the reason for his plea. Daniel says, we've been unresponsive to you. And so he prays on behalf of his people, verses 15 and 16. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. I wonder if you've learned something about praying from Daniel. We, like him, need to confess that God has acted righteously, but we have not. We, like Daniel, need to plead for mercy, that in spite of our sins and because of God's mercy, we approach him. We need to entreat God to remember us so that we, like the ancient Israelites, will not become a byword of what happens among the unrepentant. Let's repent now. Thanks, John. An interesting question, but do you think it's important for the church to intentionally repent of sin on behalf of God's people? Yeah, I think we must. I think there are enough examples of it in the Bible uh, that we would take it to heart. Um, and, you know, then question really becomes, I mean, what kind of sins can we repent of? And I would think that we would always start by those attitudes that we have nurtured, which has caused a callousness, lack of concern about the lost, and a lack of concern about the declaration of the gospel across our nation. Let's begin there, and let's tell the Lord that we're dissatisfied with us, and could he send his Holy Spirit to inflame our hearts afresh to love the gospel. Uh, so we, we start there, and then any other things as well. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, The Triumph of the Kingdom of God, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. Hi, Ben Lowell, back to the Bible Canada. We know that making trustworthy Bible teaching available to folks right across Canada is important to you. It's with that in mind that we created the 1119 Fellowship Program inspired by Deuteronomy 11, verses 18 and 19. The purpose of the fellowship is to ensure that trustworthy Bible teaching continues to be made available for generations to come. To create a stable source of funds to provide reliable, excellent, and trustworthy Bible teaching, our prayer is to welcome an additional 331 new monthly givers by the end of this year in what we're calling our March to 1,000. To learn more about the 1119 Fellowship, the benefits of joining, and to become a member, would you give us a call today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship. 
Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust.